0: Maybe it's the case that we have to sit with this kind of like like psychic contradiction for a little while.
1: Nietzsche would be like, yeah, it is, but it's bad. So stop self negating, fucking pussies. What is going down? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast for a week of bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden-Smith.
0: And I am Troy Polidori.
1: And I'm dealing with a little bit of hay fever, man. We've had some gnarly winds. I don't know if you've heard about the bushfires that we've had out here, but they're I pretty have, intense. Yeah. Damn, it has been intense. So not only has my hay fever been going crazy, but there's also ash in the air and... Um, Of course, I'm complaining about having congested sinuses and people's houses are burning down and, you know, people have died. So I guess I'll shut the fuck up. But anyway, I'm just making excuses so that if I sniffle in this episode that you guys will forgive me.
0: That's crazy, man. The world's a weird place. I'm literally looking outside at snow.
1: Oh, shit! it's snowing. Wow. It's going to be a white Christmas for Troy this year. Probably not. Well, probably not. But it'll be a slick and sloshy, muddy Christmas this year for Troy.
0: <laughs> I'll, I'll just uh, muddle my memories such that November and December get, you know, materialized into one thing.
1: That sounds good. That sounds good. And so um, just for a heads up to let people know for our main segment this week, we're going to kind of do some. Remember our old bullshitting segment, Troy, that we used to do? Oh, yeah. Where we kind of used to bullshit about something that we really didn't know too much about. We're kind of going to do something like that. Um, We're going to talk about a book that neither of us have read. In proper uh,
0: Zizekian fashion, yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But we're not really going to talk about the book. I'm just going to take some select quotes from this book based on a review that was written by Bryony White in Freeze. And it's based on this book called "Everyone Is Female and Everyone Hates It" by Andrea Long Chu, who is a, I think, a very fantastic writer who I follow on Twitter, and um, I've read a lot of her pieces elsewhere that she's published. But her first book is out. It's called "Females," and that is her. Um, the, okay, I guess the book isn't called "Everyone Is Female." Yeah. That's kind of the the tagline, I should say. Everyone is female, review, and everyone hates yeah. it. Yeah, the book is called "Females." Um, and that's kind of the theme, I guess, of the book, that everyone's female and everyone hates it. So we'll get into that. But I think there are other things um, from the quotes that I'm going to extract from this uh, this review that I want to bounce off Troy. And then we'll see if we can get a conversation going from there. Does that sound good, brother?
0: Yeah, man. I kind of love the idea that the bullshitting segment we used to do, like it was constitutively lazy. Like the whole point of it was just to riff on a thing we don't know <laughs> anything about. And we almost like enacted the constitutive principle of the segment by just no longer doing it <laughs> being too lazy to even do it
1: <laughs> yeah that's right that's right so so yeah so that's coming up in our main segment but first we have a review right brother
0: yeah so uh, we've mentioned before that if you leave us a five-star review on apple podcast or spotify or wherever it is um, we'll do our best to make sure you find it and then Um, Name drop you in the podcast, and if you ask a question in your review, we'll answer it. Um, As always, if we miss that for some reason, then just send us a tweet or an email or whatever and let us know, and we'll definitely make up for that. So we have a review in Apple Podcasts from uh, uh, Gummy Bearface from Denmark, (laughs) who says, "Hi guys, love the show. I'm a philosophy student from Denmark, and at my university, there's quite a large debate as to whether people sympathize with analytical or continental philosophy." In my opinion, I don't see the reason for such a sharp divide. So I wanted to ask you what your experiences are in regards to this divide. And is it something you experience in your work? So we're, mm. I think, pretty primed for talking about that issue, right?
1: I would say so. So you go first. What do you think about this?
0: Yeah, so the reason I mentioned being primed for this is I think me especially, um I have, I guess, in a sense, degrees from schools which work in both uh, continental and analytic philosophy um, circles. So I have experience kind of enmeshed in the middle of both of those things. And I do think there's a reason for the divide. I mean, the, the terms do name something that's different about these two different kind of methods for approaching philosophy. It's also true that there's some sense in which the content is somewhat different between the two. There are just certain issues that Kant and philosophy, because of its orientation, is going to be concerned with, where analytic philosophy is just not going to concern itself with because of its uh, different methods. Um, But there's also overlap as well. Obviously, the entire history of philosophy up to Kant is shared by um, the two for the most part. So there's a sense in which the classic problems of philosophy are still shared by the two, but then the differing methods... Um, kind of focus on different parts of that history or of the concepts dealt with in the history. So there's a reason for the divide, I think, especially from Kant until, you know, the mid 20th century. Um, But I am glad that there's sort of a push to have the two schools talk to each other a bit more and deal with problems from the other a bit more Mm. as there's no reason, I think, why there can't be dialogue between the two. You know, in the early 20th century, there was a lot of animosity between the two schools and uh, people basically calling the other either nonsense or frivolous or trivial. And um, that's, I think, unfortunate and bad and wrong. And that uh, understanding can be had between the two schools and also mutual dialogue um, without necessarily having to like adopt wholesale the methods of each side. Mm-hmm. So basically, quickly, I just think there's a reason for the divide and names something that's real. Um, but we can also work to sort of bridge the gap a little bit more and have the schools talk to each other. And it can be fruitful dialogue because I think that both sides are lacking a bit by not having dialogue with the other side.
1: Yeah. And, you know, there are plenty of scholars out there that are working um, kind of in in the gap, right? I mean, Troy, your work is uh, I I would imagine is going to continue to be for the rest of your life, kind of standing in that gap in a lot of ways. But you get people like Paul Livingston, um, Pete Wolfendale, people who are very adept with both um, with both domains. In that right,
0: Marcus Gabriel, who we'll talk a lot more about in the future of this podcast.
1: Yeah, because we're going to kind of look through one of his books. So, you know, there there are people out there that that reject the strict strict bifurcation and i kind of have a completely different not a completely different but quite a a different um educational path from troy because all of my degrees are from continental philosophy or within continental philosophy departments or at least um no yeah that's that's i think that's it yeah there's like like i didn't read any david lewis or i didn't read any kripke or anything like that in any of my studies a matter of fact those names never even fucking came up you know <laughs> so um I mean like Rawls comes up but that's just political philosophy right so of course Rawls is going to come up but in terms of like analytic metaphysics analytic epistemology the problems of analytic epistemology things like that like no one ever talked about fucking Daniel Dennett in any of the seminars or anything that I really ever did except as like a brief asides and that's even the conferences that I attended and the conferences that I organized. There was very little crossover with analytic philosophy unless there was like a person or two who was among the 20 or whatever papers that was kind of the outlier that was trying to do some kind of bridging of the divide. But generally speaking, I was pretty much immersed in those continental uh, continental contexts and it's a very different language. I feel like it's much more literary, it's much more enigmatic, and I think there's something intentional. And I'm going to say this, and I, and I think this is both to its detriment, but I think personally it's also to its, um, as a sort of boon to it, is that I think continental philosophy tends to be much more poetic. And I mean that both in the sense of, formally speaking, in terms of like the format is kind of like a poetic style, but also in the sense that it's trying to like bring being forth kind of thing right like it's trying to enact creations of you know like processual creations or something like that whereas analytic philosophy doesn't seem to generally have a kind of like process philosophical or um kind of more malleable or metaphysical metaphysics of difference kind of foundation you know
0: yeah the methodological differences between the two schools is much bigger than just this but there's some sense in which you can kind of encapsulate it in the difference between the virtue of clarity, um, and and sort of discussion over that idea of being a virtue, right? Analytic philosophy seems seems to sort of value clarity as being sort of the ultimate virtue of philosophy, or at least one of the ultimate virtues, right? One of the key virtues. Um, and there's a sense in which lots of continental philosophy, especially starting from like you know Heidegger, um, seems to think that clarity sometimes can mask um, a good thought, right? It can be detrimental. Yeah to good thought. And so uh, it's much bigger than just that, but that, that sort of keys you into where the methodological differences kind of stem from. What are the virtues of yeah. philosophy? There's some differences there.
1: And it isn't to try to be a smarty pants and use jargon or something like that, or to try to be convoluted for the sake of it. It's precisely what you're saying, that, that Heidegger believes that when people are just saying something, they're they're probably engaged in some kind of idle chatter, or they're probably inheriting language or terms or um, phrases or whatever that themselves aren't creative and so for Heidegger one of the big concerns is to try to figure out how to use language that can actually speak being and so um, you get this post Heideggerian tradition of people who are all trying to trying to use language in a way that kind of stretches what language might even be able to do because the assumption is that language is insufficient, right? That there is something beyond outside or excessive of our linguistic capacities or structures. and So that's why you do get a lot of continental philosopher types that engage a lot with Wittgenstein. There's a lot of work um, with with Witt, but you don't really find too many uh, continental philosophers that are like, I'm going to deal with Bertrand Russell, (laughs) you know?
0: Yeah, which so, I mean, you can't really understand Wittgenstein without understanding Bertrand Russell. But um, yeah, I do, I do think that yeah, the, the emphasis on language there um, and Wittgenstein being kind of the person who introduces a different element to language um, from the early analytic philosophy uh, use of language is it keys you into why commonal philosophy um, figures tend to deal with that. But then the the whole ordinary language philosophy school that follows from Wittgenstein in the analytic circle is sort of ignored by continental philosophy, which I think is kind of funny.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, I mean, I, I probably should, and, and I often do think that I will, and that I should engage more with analytic philosophy. It's something that, you know, one of my many, I don't know, lines on my to-do list, I guess you would say.
0: Yeah. I mean, we do on the podcast, right? And you keep me up to date on continental stuff and, we read some papers and books and the deal with analytic stuff. So we uh, keep ourselves abreast.
1: Sounds good to me. All right, sweet. Also, we do want to just uh, do a quick reminder that if you find value in what we're producing here and you enjoy our content and you want access to bonus stuff, please go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn. You can support us there by signing up for one of our tiers. Five bucks a month gives you the whole shebang. Bonus episodes, newsletter, as well as being able to recommend topics for future episodes and then there's the two dollar tier which just gives you access to the democracy motherfuckers which gives you a say when we do uh when we do put out the the call let's say for topics and then uh, you get to vote in the poll as well so go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn to hook us up peeps thank you
0: yeah yeah so you know what we gotta do before we jump into the main segment austin
1: i'm champing at the bit brother
0: yeah man this is the shitty minute this is where one of us mm-hmm. rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears this week. So Austin, what's got you down?
1: So you know how I've been doing this uh, this Bible read on my YouTube channel, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I'm reading I'm I'm reading the Bible every day, and then I'm kind of just uploading a little video on YouTube of my thoughts. You know, they're not always in depth. I'm not like digging through commentaries or I'm not digging into the original language like some sort of exegetical or expositional study or something like that. Um, A little bit, you know, sometimes because there are phrases that just don't feel right, you know, because I'm using a particular translation, and I'm like, "Eh, I don't know if I like that, and, you know, I go in there, and generally my instinct is pretty good because sure enough, I'm like, ah, yeah, I knew that that was a a kind of particularly reformed, biased uh, translation, because I'm using the English Standard version at the moment. Um, Why would you do that? And... (laughs) <laughs> I know it's just cuz it's it's pretty easy to read and it uh, is still, you know, pretty like literal of a translation. Um I might switch to like King James actually just to fucking go straight into that beautiful language, but um but but anyway, that's not the point. The other day, I, you know, I'm going through Genesis, Exodus, I'm looking through the Torah, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And so I did a little bit of Digging up on the documentary hypothesis, just to kind of like refresh myself and kind of, you know, remind me of my undergraduate days of my Old Testament classes with Doc. It's Dr. been a Boyd. while, right? <laughs> it's been a while, dude. So I was like, oh, I'm just gonna refresh myself. See what the see what the new studies are about uh, documentary hypothesis and source criticism. Wait, wait,
0: see if I, see if I can remember. It's the J, the E, the P, and the D, right?
1: That's right. Do you remember what each of them stands for?
0: Uh, the the uh, Yahwist, the uh, Elioist, the priestly uh, source, whatever, and the Deuteronomist. Yeah, that's right? right.
1: That is right. That and stuff is
0: fried into my brain.
1: Yes, it is. And for people who have no fucking clue what we're talking about, go check out my YouTube video. Um, it's, <laughs> it's the one that I do in between finishing Genesis and starting Exodus. And I, it's titled, like, Who Wrote the Torah?, and uh, but anyway, that's not the point. The thing is, is, so I I went down like a deep rabbit hole on YouTube, and I watched some lectures by um, Old Testament scholars and talking of, and and other people, and then I you know fucking Wikipedia rabbit hole, and then I ended up reading like an article and shit like that. And it, 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 it was a fun evening, but this is my shitty minute. Um, <laughs> I think it's so funny when secular scholars use BCE rather than BC. And it's not because I have some sort of attachment to like the sacrosanct use of BC as in before Christ. But it's because for some reason it feels like they're trying so hard to separate themselves from BC and you know what it reminds me of? And I this is my shitty minute cuz I don't know if it's true or not, but it reminds me of like when Mormons and Christians use euphemisms rather than cuss words. So instead of saying <laughs> fuck <laughs> Instead of saying fuck, they say frick and it's like somehow they think that that absolves them and it's like no motherfucker we know what you're trying to say they're like oh guy dang it and it's like no you just said god damn it in your heart okay motherfucker it's like don't think that just because you changed a couple of the words around and some of the syllables that you get away with this it's like you can't well, that's say,
0: that's like so biblical though dude you can just change one little like iota and then everything changes
1: it's such bullshit man and i feel the same thing <laughs> when they're like oh in 1400 BCE i'm like oh you motherfuckers we know what you're saying you just don't want to say it because you got to be all secular and you're checking yourself and you're trying to make sure that you live according to this like taskmaster of being a good secular scholar fuck you guys come on just say it Ugh, I- i'm surprised at this dude really
0: yeah because like shouldn't i mean yeah it's small and insignificant right um but shouldn't you try to like accurately and in an unbiased way like depict measures of time is it kind of weird
1: that they, we
0: do it based upon like this religious
1: dimension? It's totally ridiculous. As a matter of fact, I have a quote from Kofi Annan. That this makes total sense. So This is what Kofi Annan says. He says, The Christian calendar no longer belongs exclusively to Christians. People of all faiths have taken to using it simply as a matter of convenience. There is so much interaction between people of different faiths and cultures, different civilizations, if you like... That some shared way of reckoning time is a necessity. And so the Christian era has become the common era. So that's why it's CE rather than AD or BCE rather than BC. But that's not the point. You're absolutely right. Let's open this up and universalize the motherfucker. But for some reason, it just feels like they're trying so hard to do it that I'm like, it just feels like <laughs> forced, you know? Wait, what, what, what makes you think they're trying so hard? Just because they use the term? I don't know. It just feels that way. Maybe it's just because (laughs) I'm, like, super sensitive to when, like, Mormons say frick or when Christians are like, ah, heck, you know? And I'm like, oh, God, stop it. And then they have their, like, pious purity eyes, and they look at you like, oh, I don't swear. And I'm like, you just said shoot way more than I've ever said shit in my life. And there is... They don't. It, they don't mean anything. There's no difference, you know. It's like tone. You can't tell me that shoot in your heart or in your intent or whatever is different than shit in my heart or in my intent necessarily. Like I just don't
0: buy that shit. Well, this is this is why you got to read more analytic philosophy, dude, because you think meanings are in the head.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, like yeah, I, I do get like the, um. I don't know if you feel this way too, but every time I'm reading something that's uh, you know academic or scholarly, and they'll have the BCE or the CE in there. I think my mind every single time gets removed from the thought process I'm currently in and reading the book or the text and goes to like my thought about some some evangelical summer who just shut the book in anger. <laughs> that ah, term being so used. Just See, like happy me, holidays, I... right?
1: Yeah, yeah. See, for me, I don't even do that one. I do the kind of like, oh God, some person was just trying to be super secular and they just wanted to stay pure in their secularity. And I was kind of like And they think, and then I'm going all Dan Barber, and I'm like, and they think that somehow they've absolved themselves from their own transcendent commitments, but they don't realize their metaphysical bias. And then I'm like, ah, you guys are just the same.
0: Well, let me ask you, dude, do you, um, what do you use for uh, neutral gender pronouns?
1: Comrade. (laughs) Imagine
0: a person who goes to the store and comrade then buys (laughs) some oranges. (laughs)
1: Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I've always struggled with this because I was, I was trained like hardcore that you do not confuse the singular and the plural. Right. So you, the the, it's not that, Oh, uh, Jan went to the store. And then when they went to the checkout, they did this, you know, you don't, do that. That's a confusion. But now it's kind of accepted. And I know that even in like in English composition classes and stuff like that, like 101 classes, it's becoming more accepted to use they for the singular. Mm-hmm. And I, it just like it hurts my head. Like I just no, I ah. enact
0: that shit, dude. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: We need we need a better term for sure. So but yeah, what I'm thinking is it is confusing. It's better than you know just using the, you know, the male pronoun. But um I do use they, but I wish we had a different term that was Gender neutral and singular. But uh when we if we do have that at some point, it's gonna be awkward to, you know, infuse it into the language, right?
1: Yeah. Which we, sh- we should just fucking use it and just get over it. You know? Isn't that gonna be awkward too? Even more awkward because it
0: depersonalizes.
1: Yeah, but yeah, fuck it. I mean, I guess you know what I did <laughs> like in my book, for example, is that sometimes I used he and sometimes I used she. I tend to use she more though. I would say I use she 70% of the time. And I kind of and see for me, it's kind of interesting because it's almost like that overcompensation for me is like a political act, right? It's kind of like I am I'm swinging the pendulum to the other extreme.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I get that. Um, It doesn't seem to me there's a good answer to these kinds of things. Like everything is just what's the least bad answer.
1: And I'm sure that someone might say that, yeah, using Common Era is a political act because we're rejecting kind of the Western colonial imperialist hegemon. But then using of the exact same dates. <laughs> yeah, then using the exact same dates. I know. I, honestly, it's such a small gripe. It just, for some reason, I just, I felt like it was like they were trying so hard to just be super like Mr. Secular. And I was like, okay, dude, like, whatever. It's the exact same dates yeah i i don't know
0: yeah that's the thing right if someone thinks of it as like a radical political act to use bce or ce that's like like buying you know a thousand black sabbath albums just to burn them it's like bro
1: (laughs) (laughs) okay what battle are you winning (laughs) (laughs) okay dude uh yeah Uh, i know and i'm probably wrong but fuck it that's how i was feeling this week so that's what we get
0: (laughs) No, I definitely know those feels, man. That stuff never leaves you. (laughs) For sure. Yeah, so we want to jump into this uh, book by uh, Andrea Chu?
1: Yeah, I mean, we'll sort of jump into the book. Yeah, I'm down for it.
0: Or kind of jump around it? Like skid past it? Yeah, so...
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) What's the proper
0: metaphor? I don't know.
1: You read the review, yeah? Yeah. Okay. Um... Did you have any first impressions going in totally blind? Because you're not really familiar with Andrea's work, right?
0: Actually, I am. Um, oh, you are. Okay. I, I recognized uh, her name when you mentioned uh, possibly doing this, but I couldn't remember from what. From I sent I you Googled an. I sent
1: you an essay that she wrote a while back, actually, as well. The. I don't know if
0: my new, my new vagina won't make me happy. One. Yeah. 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 I remember reading that. Yeah. And I quite liked it actually. Um, I obviously don't have like a uh, a super um strong interest in the debate uh over whether she's a like good or proper trans person or self-hating uh female or whatever, right? I don't I don't I know there was some pushback on that issue and I don't have a yeah a stake in that debate. But I thought that the essay was was really well written and interesting and um I think gets at an important issue. Uh the issue basically just being that um just because someone is is trans doesn't mean that uh transitioning is gonna fulfill them forever or like solve their problems yeah. and we shouldn't expect it to that's not what transitioning is about right um mm. and that gets that kind of you know deflates a myth I think that a lot of people uh have about uh trans people and that um uh even some trans people that I know that I've talked to have uh not universally i guess because I only know a few but have Talked about similar issues, and I think that that resonates fairly well—not in my own experience, obviously, but I think in a lot of people's experience.
1: Mm. Yeah, I know that there was a, a lot of debate about the issue of passing, right? You know, especially surrounding like contrapoints in some of the videos that uh, that Natalie had put out. Um, and again, I don't have—I don't know. I'm kind of just listening on uh, on these debates but I know this is a really heated topic um and I kind of almost like it's one of these things that when when there's like a really sensitive and hot political issue at the moment it's uh it's really hard to not say anything because I feel like we live in a a socio-political climate where we are sort of like commanded to speak or say something um with like preformed intelligence and cogents all the time
0: and i don't yeah, please please deposit your opinion before you pass by the bars right yeah
1: yeah and and i don't i don't know so much and um and i know that makes people uncomfortable like like people ask me for opinions all the time and sometimes i say ah, i'm still working through it and i can see in their eyes that there's like yeah, there's like a it's it's not a disappointment, but it's almost like a judgment even. Right? <laughs> Don't like Don't you have
0: priors, sir? Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I know. So, um, but I've really enjoyed reading her as well. I think I think she's actually an excellent writer. Um and just somebody who has like the power like over rhetoric to me is a, is someone that I'm kind of automatically attracted to their output, you know. So I think she's an excellent writer, so I I may read the book at some point. But I haven't read the book yet, but there's this review by Briony White, and um, it's in Freeze, freeze freeze.com, and and it has some interesting things to say about the book that I thought would be like an interesting launch pad for us to kind of BS a little bit. So, Troy, what were like your first impressions just reading the review, or if you had any thoughts?
0: I thought it was super interesting. I did want to talk about just the title, since it's a quote from the... From the book itself. Um okay. and talking here about rhetoric, I think uh, and even kind of harkening back to our own discussion, you know, a few minutes ago about uh, continental philosophy and analytic philosophy and this idea of uh clarity of language being sort of a virtue. Um, there's some purposefully unclear uh rhetorical statements. Uh yes. it seems littered throughout this book, and and done so for a reason. Now, if that reason is purely provocation, you can have some, you know, takes about that. But uh, I Even provocation itself can be a uh, virtue in certain circumstances, I think. Uh, but that doesn't even mean that this is purely provocation. So, mm. um, dancing around the issue here, the quote that I'm thinking of is uh, the title of the review, Everyone is Female and Everyone Hates It. Um, is pretty interesting and super catchy. That's a, an effectively mm. rhetorical uh, yeah. quote to take from the book.
1: Yeah. When I first read it, in my mind... I was thinking, like, is this going to be one of those yin-yang kind of things, right? But that we live in a world that doesn't allow the one polarity, but that only values the other polarity. That you have, like, the dominance of, let's say, patriarchy, and therefore um, the, the elements of the feminine are despised, excluded. But nevertheless, we can't actually deny the reality that that element is integral in a like a, a cohesive whole, that's what I was thinking when I initially saw the title, you know, yeah,
0: I didn't have any thoughts. I just because obviously there's a um a like a practical seeming contradiction in the first half of the sentence, so as usual, my analytic philosophy brain goes to like um how can I uh keep the intentional um content of the statement the same, but use different words um. And so yeah, I'm looking for, reading the review, looking for different content to substitute there for female.
1: Okay, so it was the word female because it's attached to biological sex that initially triggered you or caught your attention?
0: Yeah, I mean, everyone is female, clearly, an inaccurate factual statement if taken literally. So what do we have to substitute for female there uh, to make the sentence um, still intentionally the same, but um, have a different uh, content?
1: Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, I think I think okay, it actually, so what else kind of does yeah. that
0: right? Um, later on, it seems there's like a, a thesis statement of the book that um, uh, is named here, where Chu um, says the thesis of this little book is that femaleness is a universal sex defined by self-negation. Um, that's still been ambiguous, right? And so after that, she says, "I'll define as female any psychic operation in which the self is sacrificed to make room for the desires of another." And that was the moment where I knew, oh, this is why Austin wants to talk about
1: this.
0: (laughs) Because there's some Lacanian uh, uh, vestiges here.
1: Yeah, well, I'll be honest. The first thing that popped into my mind, um, beyond the fact of like male-female sexuation, which popped into my head throughout as I was reading this, right? But you know what else popped up into my head a lot? Was the idea, just in general, kind of like detaching for a minute the moniker of femaleness but this idea of self-negation that I find so interesting that um, I think I struggle with figuring out actually where to come down on whether on on how to value or how to criticize uh, the idea of self-negation so from a critical I mean from a Christian perspective you get the valorization of self-negation die to self sell everything you have come follow me Uh, take up your cross daily, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, Mortification of sin in someone like John Owen, um, the perpetual self-hating that Nietzsche rails against. And then, of course, my mind went to Nietzsche and Nietzsche's criticism. You know, he says, I've got a quote here um, in Beyond Good and Evil. He says, the Christian faith from the beginning is sacrifice, the sacrifice of all freedom, all pride, all self-confidence of spirit. It is at the same time subjection, self-derision, and self-mutilation. Now, he's being critical of this. I mean, he calls Christianity resentment or ressentiment. Um, It's weak-willed. And so there's something about this idea of self-negation, self-destruction, that Nietzsche criticizes, that Christianity valorizes, that psychoanalysis valorizes and I think, some other ways. And then, so, um, in Andrea's book here, this idea that femaleness is identified as, an, as a psychic operation in which the self is sacrificed to make room for the desires of another seems to imply that she's establishing a type of metaphysical theory of femaleness, or at least, let's say, a metaphysical theory of self-negation um, as being this idea of sacrificing yourself to make room for the desires of others, and then she says, okay, and that's what we will call femaleness. Not female biology, not the feminine, but like the essence of femaleness, which she calls, um, what does she call it? In like an existential condition, a universal existential condition, which I think is really kind of interesting to think through, you know?
0: And she also says psychic operation, so that we can take those as being uh, mostly synonymous, right?
1: Yeah, so it's structural, it's a psychic operation, and it's a universal existential condition so it's also metaphysical so she's she's creating like a metaphysics here of self-negation and then calling it femaleness no
0: yeah um i'm not sure what what do you mean by it being metaphysical
1: that it is you know a kind of a priori that it is prior that it is uh beyond the empirical that it is formal um maybe it's transcendental would that be better but um uh, it is uh it is opening up to kind of the uh, the ground, if you will, of being.
0: Yeah, so it's not known a priori, but it's like in some sense um, structures experience, such that it's not something you you strictly find through experience. Is that the idea?
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah, so transcendental. Yeah, transcendental is a good word, I think, for that. Um, so, I mean, kind of the obvious question here, and the one I, I keep kind of uh, wanting to address: Why, if it's this? transcendental structural condition on experience such that you can actually say everyone is this and everyone hates it. Yeah. Um, Why female? (laughs) Why use that term? Like what's the point? It's clearly not um, the sex or any reference to the gender, which is associated often with that sex. Why use that term?
1: Well, so this is what I was thinking. So a lot of my work at the moment is dealing with, um, mathematical algorithms, linear algebraic pricing models that are used to mitigate uncertainty in market transactions in like the domains of financial speculation and things like that, right? And um, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is how there is a type of um, uh, performative and uh, forceful Analytic rationality that accompanies these pricing models, and it does so through um, a, a type of relationship with uh, a, a type of relationship with a certain metaphysical understanding of how the world is—that the world has uncertainty and chaos and things like that. That, but we th- we can, if we just have enough inputs or enough. Positive variables, and we have enough data, then we can mitigate the effects of that uncertainty, and potentially, um, you know, prevent prevent it from ever like having any sort of detrimental effects or whatever. Right? That's risk management <laughs> in a nutshell. Um, but that's really what pricing models do: is they try to predict flows, and they try to predict uh, trends, and predict consumer behavior, et cetera, et cetera. And they do that by looking at like prices, uh, historical prices and historical trends and all kinds of other things. And then they kind of like factor in volatility and various various other inputs that they'll put into, like the most famous pricing model is called the Black-Scholes-Merton model, the BSM model. Um, and so one of the things I've been thinking about is how there's kind of almost, if we if we kind of tie this to Lacan's division between male and female sexuation, that there's kind of like a masculine or a male logic Um that, that accompanies the logic of the algorithm. It's that it is always trying to prevent castration, prevent chaos, to push the chaos away, to completely mitigate it from actually existing. Whereas female sexuation um, is not about that, it's the non-all, right? Um, and, and so I think that what, what I thought was interesting about this is why is it female is that this idea of self-negation is contrary to that kind of active will of Nietzsche or the like, the need to overcome castration of male sexuation or like the capitalist logic of pure positivity that has to cover over everything and it has to refuse all negativity for pure positivity, for um, the yes, for the answer, for, um, for that which covers over the cracks. That seems to be the kind of dominant logic of, of late capitalism. And that seems to be associated also with a masculine logic The masculine logic of dominance, of again uh, refusing castration or negation or weakness or anything like that, but the self-negation, the opening up to weakness, the opening up to the desires of the other, um, seems to be kind of opened up to a non-male or a non-masculine logic. And then I was also thinking about John Berger in his work, or Berger in his work, in the idea of like the difference between um, the kind of like the 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 male figures that are in like. athletic clothes, and they're like um, figures of action and doing, whereas the females are always the ones that are looked at, right? The way that they dress, yeah. the way that they are adorned, the way that they're posed is always that they are objects of desire, or objects to be looked at. And so they're opened up to the gaze of the other. And I thought maybe all of that kind of fits into what Chu was talking about. Sorry, that was a lot.
0: Yeah, that is a lot. I'm trying to kind of put that all into like one one thought. <laughs> So is the idea then that the reason to use female here is is a reference to sort of Lacanian female sexuation um, and sort of keying into that idea that like Lacan, you know, male and female sexuation isn't a reference to biological males and females. It's relation to structural uh, psychological categories, right? Or psychic categories.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's why I thought it was so important that she referred to it, one, as a psychic operation, but also, two, as a universal, and I think the universal is important, a universal existential condition. So it's lived. Um, I think existential probably carries a couple different connotations. It also implies that there's not some sort of like essential metaphysics that's going on, right? Existentialism rejects. Uh, or it just says, existence precedes essence, so essence is something that's constructed later, right? Um, and it's kind of a, a fabrication, or maybe in Lacanian terms, we might say it uh, belongs to the domain of the imaginary, right? Or the symbolic, even. Um, but, but that it isn't prior, it isn't primary. And so I think that's going on by calling it uh, an existential condition, but it's also universal, which means that it's, it's got this structural, this transcendental, this metaphysical um, application for all but it expresses itself in different or variations or or like in different and varying um intensities right so that's why everyone is female but that doesn't mean that everyone you know has a vagina or whatever it is that, or is xx or whatever however you want to define femaleness in like typical categories
0: yeah so i think um we should try to be clear here about um this idea that universal existential condition right um it's not a purely it's not a purely structural one in the sense and what i mean by that maybe that's a bit ambiguous um it's not necessarily that necessarily just the case that given the structural conditions that exist individuals uh experience being female or whatever this um sacrificing of oneself self-negation um this is of getting at a deeper, like human issue, right? Like, so what I'm getting at is it's mm. not just that like capitalism makes us female and therefore we hate it, uh, which is one thing you can talk about, right? How like current contingent social conditions um, situate us in such a way that we experience uh, these negative things and we hate it, right? And that's certainly going to be true in a lot of extents, um, but it seems like she was getting something deeper than that, right? This is more universal than just what. Um, Like Western capitalist people experience, you think?
1: I don't know. I think at one level we can stay here and we can say there is something anti-capitalist about this uh, existential condition of femaleness that she talks about, precisely because I would say that capitalism does not allow for self-negation. So if femaleness is to be equated with self-negation, late capitalism is precisely the antithesis of that. It is about self-positivity it is about being an achievement subject an entrepreneur of the self it is about being a portfolio manager of your assets of social capital cultural capital of credit scores etc there is no room for self-negation in capitalism there's no room for time there's no room for death there's no room for destruction it's life 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 positive 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 all the time so i think there's room for self-negation
0: for some people though like
1: there's only certain people that that can fully enact that say that again
0: it seems like if, if so, some people, like people um, who have the most privilege and the most power, are going to be people, ones who are fully involved in this self positivity, right? But that's always going to, because of you know, um, like limited resources and whatnot, going to mean that some people then have to self negate so that um, those who can actually enact, like the late capitalist individual, can do so. Like some people are going to be told that they don't deserve more that they have to. They have, they deserve, they, they suffer and they deserve their suffering, right? Especially if they're like from a third world country or whatever. Um, and they can't really have democracy, uh, because, um, the engine of progress has to continue, um, in the Western country. It's like, I mean, just look at right like, currently right now in Bolivia, right? Um, can the people of Bolivia democratically elect their president? No, they're not allowed to, right? Because, um, like Tesla needs more lithium or something, right? Um, uh, Germany needs more whatever the the, the thing was that the um, Germany was I can't remember the the mineral or whatever it was that Bolivia has a lot of and that Europe was uh, being threatened by Morales from um, having like free trade over or something. Uh, whatever the facts are it's certainly the case that some people are told that they have to uh, sacrifice um, their desire sacrifice what, what they want and need for the sake of um, like universal progress or whatever.
1: Well, okay. So two things. I mean, first of all, that's not self negation, right? Um, so that's some sort of like imposition. So that's like oppression or exploitation. And I, I wonder well, how that's told that it's told it's, told
0: it's commanding self negation. It's saying not only are yeah, like you this must from you, but you deserve it. Like you, you need, to, right. you need to like believe in this sacrifice.
1: Right. So, but then here's what I would say is, is, it's, here's this, where there's, there's this weird type of self sacrifice. Cause it's not really a self sacrifice. It's still ultimately tied into like a chain of meaning, a master signifier of development, right? So modernization theory is like, okay, well, first you start with a little bit of industrialization and then you get democracy a little bit later. But you got to go through the process. You got to be sufficiently industrialized or modernized so that you can get to the, uh, the, the, the next stage let's say and then of course you're reaching development so you're always chasing this chain of development that uh, is being set by the standard bearer of the Washington Consensus. So there's this linear path that you have to follow along. So again, you're being negated from your resistance to that, right? So it's not a negation of self to core, it's that you are being negated from your freedom um, from the outside right and then once you buy into the system you buy into the system and then it's all pure positivity again it's buy consume sell you know maximize yourself buy your products be part of the system you must be part of the system there is nothing else that you can do so i don't know if that's the same thing as what she's talking about is it
0: well i, I don't think it's necessarily what she's talking about i'm just trying to get at this this idea of oh yeah that, okay. uh, late capitalism is pure positivity it just seems to me like the lumpen proletariat does not get that privilege a pure positivity
1: um well i don't know if it's a privilege and i think i think that the well, lumpy I mean, prolix is
0: certainly cast as a privilege um okay yeah yeah for yeah for those but terms. i still like,
1: think that i still think that the the that the marginalized those on the periphery are still they're they're living under the shadow of that positivity you know what i mean like they're yeah, not negated means. say that again
0: as its means right it's only because yeah. some suffer that others are able to enjoy the fruits of this pure positivity.
1: Yeah, but they but they are induced to buy into it as well by their, you know, maybe they have a, a dictatorial government or um, they are ravaged by structural adjustment programs. Whatever it is, um, there's still a sense in which the program is laid out for them and they buy into it. They must buy into it. Is that is that so? Is that like inducing self negation? Is that what you're saying?
0: Uh, no, I guess I'm just getting the idea that it seems like there is a certain um, group of people, like you'd refer to them as marginalized, lumpen proletariat, or whatever, they are just ignored. Um, they're just they're expected to be removed from the system. They're not allowed to participate. They're sort of deemed inhuman, mm. um, and that kind of has to exist for you know the skyscrapers to go up and for you know the uh, the NIMBYs to have um, their housing projects or whatnot, right? So um, it just seems like there's some sense in which I don't know. I, I just don't see the the pure positivity being universal. It, it seems like it has to, even if it casts itself as being universal, um, in, in order to exist. There has to be like a domain of of negation there. But I don't know. Yeah. This, this may be going off on a, on a tangent that we don't have to go down. Um, yeah. What did you What did you want to get to with this idea that um, Chu is pointing at this sort of category of self-negation that that exists at the individual level, um, and this notion of late capitalism as being uh, pure positivity.
1: Well, even at the political level, I think we can still kind of stick with what you're talking about because I think that's really interesting. You know, the if the let's say the lumpen proletariat, to use that that good Marxist term, if they are kind of forced into a self-negation, then what what is kind of happening there is that um, there's some sort of resistance, right? There's an outside, there's an excess to the pure positivity of capitalism. It wants to convert everything. It needs to convert everything. It, seeks it says to it con- does. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, even I mean, this is like where Agamben comes in. Even by excluding, it's including them, right? Like even the 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 kind of slave the slaves that are mining coltan in the Republic of Congo are included into the system. They're included through their exploitation. They're included by being excluded, right? So yeah. there's still some element in which they're they're incorporated, let's say, into the larger system. So what I wonder then, though, is does that not speak to um, the fact that capitalism is not hegemonic? Right? That there are outsides. That that the lumpen proletariat is precisely outside, and so capitalism has this really tenuous relationship with how it's able to deal with them, right? It will hyper-exploit and create, like, super-profits and hyper-profits through slave labor or through, like, radical depreciation of wages or whatever, um, or just simply by kind of, like, deeming them to be the non-human but nevertheless still using the mineral reserves of the land on which they reside or um, the water or whatever you know something like that but there's this weird kind of like ambiguous relationship that capitalism has with that outside but nevertheless it speaks to the fact that there is an outside right so like you're talking about Bolivia right now and what's going on in Bolivia is can they have democratic elections it's like no they're they're not allowed to and so they are being quote unquote self-negated and what's being self-negated is precisely their resistance to you know western capitalist imperialist democracy right and so there is an outside so there's like a post-hegemonic framework that's that's being discussed here
0: yeah i think mean, that's exactly right and i kind of you know with my own inclinations i like to kind of locate that uh, part of this contradiction at the sort of moral or normative level right and so a great example of this is how um, much discourse in America is sort of addressed to people who are suffering or people who um, are the victims of like structural conditions, people who lose their wealth in 2008, people who are suffering under the burden of huge student loans, people who you know, name the different form of uh, structurally caused uh, suffering to individuals and groups. And those people are are told in a sense, um, they're, they're removed from the sort of benefits of this pure positivity, right? Because we need to continue to grow GDP by 3% and that's just gonna have some victims, right? And we're not gonna sort of adjust the playing field such that uh, everybody can sort of uh, survive and not you know, lose their livelihood when one of these weird accidents happens. Um, but then also we're gonna tell the people and sort of address them as moral agents that they deserve this because they didn't do something right. Uh, you wouldn't be a victim if you hadn't done something uh, wrong or incorrect in your past, and so they're like simultaneously addressed as being sort of inhuman because they're not treated fairly, but then also treated as like preeminently human because they're assumed to be moral agents who can understand that they deserve their own suffering. There's so this weird contradiction um, there that I think points to the fact that the the system doesn't, the, you know, the late capitalist system doesn't have a way of, of properly. Addressing people like this. It has to see them as both inhuman in one sense and then like preeminently human in the other because it it can't really uh, address what it's done to these people.
1: Well, there's a third element too, though, right? Because not only does it say that you deserve this and then give them that element of kind of perverse, that that perverse human uh, inclusion, but then there's also then saying, ah, but. You can become just like those millionaires so long as you buy into the system and work hard and get a good education and build your human capital, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's that element of pure positivity that does come back, right? So it's kind of, I think it's there. It's always dangling the carrot in front of them saying, you can so long as you play by the rules.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a lie though, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's the key is that it's it's a lie and it's not the case that everyone can actually uh, get the fruits of that pure positivity. There's always going to be some who, who suffer, and that, that's like, that's the inhuman address, right? It's saying, you know, there's some people who are going to suffer, and it's not fair, but you know, whatever, like this is the best we can do, and that's rarely ever like said out loud because then you get to like the you know complete um, immorality and nefariousness of the system.
1: Well, here's what's really perverse: it's not only a lie, but it it's partly true, and that's why it's even worse. Because so say someone who's extremely impoverished living in the projects, but nevertheless they can get a Facebook account and they can spend, or not a Facebook, an Instagram account, and they can do like fitness stuff or whatever it is that they're doing like in their home and they can live under that lie, that illusion as though they are building up social capital and they might get a couple thousand followers or whatever, but the truth is, is that they are still kind of buying into the system or they're kind of being included into the system, but they might most likely never make it to the fact where they're, you know, getting hundreds of thousands of followers and making money on sponsors or something like that, Um, or making money from sponsors or anything like that. But nevertheless, there is a truth to the idea that they're getting something, right? They're getting something from the attention economy, or they're getting some kind of cultural capital in return. And that's why it's even more produced, because it's not just a bold-faced lie. It's not like a, hey, come over here, and then, no, you don't get anything. It's you get just a tiny, tiny, tiny little bit. And then not only that, but that tiny little bit is going to make you want more. Because as John Hamm says in Mad Men, what is happiness? Happiness is a moment before you want more happiness. So you get that (laughs) little bit of happiness... And then you just need more happiness and you need more and you need more. So then you buy into the logic of positivity, even though you might never be able to actually realize it because it's so it's, cause it's not a pure lie. It's just, it's mostly a lie, you know, or it's a lie with a little bit of truth. It's kind of like just dangling the carrot in front of you.
0: Yeah. I think this, this kind of circles back around to my original question or one of my original questions, which was, is this getting to something purely about capitalism or actually something more human than even that? And I think Ooh, yeah. this shows that it, it's it's the um, it's the latter, in that capitalism is parasitic on something that's already existent within humans, and yeah. that's this structure of desire, such that um, you can. And this is like a classic, like psychoanalytic uh, notion, right? That you can never really satisfy your desire. Desire is exists in such a way that it's not to be ultimately satisfied, and yet the whole reason for desire is to convince you that it. If you just get this one more thing, you'll be satisfied. So it's this like structural contradiction that exists within like the very category of desire itself. And that's more human than capitalism. And, and capitalism is parasitic upon it. That's why it's so effective because it discovers this about humans mm. and then weaponizes it.
1: That's right. So when, so how is everybody female then? In what way? Is it just Wasn't because that, everyone uh, deals? Yeah, go ahead.
0: Yeah. I mean, isn't that, that's how I interpreted it. Obviously having not read the book and not knowing the true answer to this, (laughs) uh, it seems like you can interpret this. And um, as the basic kind of psychoanalytic notion of everybody is sort of a, like a slave of their desire. Right. Um, And we're sort of as human beings situated with this complex of desiring things, needing to be satisfied and never being able to. And that, Is something we all hate, right? Something about the way that current social conditions exist in 21st century America uh, where most of the readers of this are going to come from is an especially poignant or unique view of that uh, subjective experience. But it's a universal one by virtue of being a human Mm. being that someone exists in this way. So I think you can make this universalist claim of everyone is female, right? And someone who reads this Mm. book and 200 years when we're either in a post-capitalist utopia or we've destroyed most of living things on earth, um, we'll be able to, in some sense, uh, understand that sentiment um, because it's universal.
1: What do you think about the connections that I made between the kind of Christian call to die to self and then Nietzsche's criticism of this idea, You know, and then his offer is to be the strong affirming will, right?
0: Yeah. So, um, Nietzsche is obviously being critical of the self negation inherent in like German Christianity during the 19th century. Right. Um, right. I'm curious what you think about what that kind of self negation or what relationship, that kind of self negation that Nietzsche's criticizing has to do with take up your cross mentality from the new Testament. I mean, it's going to be like eight months before you get there in your Bible read-through. But I'm curious <laughs> for like a proleptic response.
1: Um, so you just want to know, like, like what am I like? What is Nietzsche getting at here?
0: Like, how do you fit that? Because obviously Nietzsche in, criticizes self-negation in a way that Chu um, is also criticizing self-negation. Um, but it seems like there's going to be different answers given the different modalities of the criticism right? Or different responses given the modalities of the criticism.
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, part of it is, is that for Nietzsche, um, Christianity is viewed as being weak, right? Um, it's self hating and it is, uh, kind of morose and it doesn't affirm this world. This world is just a means to an end. The world that really matters is the afterlife. And it's ineffectual, he thinks. And so um, And so for him, he obviously wants to kind of almost completely invert that logic. I mean, that's why he wrote a book called "The Antichrist." Um, he's inverting that logic to be self-affirming and to be powerful and to be an active rather than reactive force, whereas Christianity is reactive. Um, but rather to be a to be the hammer that smashes things. He talks about philosophizing with a hammer, but I think he kind of would almost want to view a strong willed person as being one who like is a type of hammer. Um, I'm picturing God what's it called? a fucking a wrecking ball basically, right And um and so that's what he's getting at. It's this idea of like that self-hating that downtrodden weakness, the turn the other cheek thing that he sees. Like if he were around today, I think he would say that that's pussy shit is how he would put it. Right to be crass.
0: Yeah, would Nietzsche be alt right if you were? Totally, <laughs> totally, dude.
1: Come on, You're like Gavin McGinnis, fucking, <laughs> totally, dude. They got the mustache too. Um, but so that's so that's what it is, right? It's it's that Christianity is pussy shit. For him and Christianity sees meekness the word is actually in Greek it's praeus but it actually means strength under control because the idea is it's like you can kill the body but what is that going to do right and um, this world is a temporary home or this world is of secondary importance which again then Nietzsche would criticize and be like oh great so you don't affirm this world you're a fucking nihilist all you do is you. This world doesn't mean anything. It's just the afterlife, and which is people get wrong. They think Nietzsche's a nihilist. No, he says Christianity is nihilist, uh, nihilistic, um, precisely because of that, because it rejects this world as being an end in itself. And for Nietzsche, it's affirming this world, affirming the things of this world, the self, the touch, the smell, the sense, the immediate, right. And uh, and so that's why he's critical of Christianity. So anything that denies those things, anything that denies the Imminence of touch, anything that denies the imminence of like gratification of of self, like he says that Christianity and alcohol are the two greatest evils in the world, right? And again, alcohol is because it kind of like distorts your mind and it and it doesn't allow you to be that strong wrecking ball of a force. So it's something along those lines. So you're saying that Nietzsche was straight edge? What (laughs) you're saying? Oh, he hundred percent was. He totally was. Hundred (laughs) percent. And He only um, so, had sex, and he probably only had sex once in his life, and he got syphilis. So and so got syphilis, him. yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's what you get, motherfucker, for angering God. That's Have right. sex once, die of syphilitic insanity. <laughs> so, isn't there a different modality to these criticisms, though? Because it seems like like Nietzsche's um, grasping for like life affirmation, right? And then he sees Christianity as a negation of that, and so it's the enemy. Um, Right. And that, you know, Plato as well. So they're twin slave moralities. Whereas it seems like in Chu's diagnosis, if we're interpreting it through the psychoanalytic lens, it's not necessarily just Christianity that does it. Because even in Nietzsche, you have this like, kind of like a notion of the fall um, where Christianity is the fall. And then you can kind of regain this like uh, some Mm -hmm. sense um, of this previous um, like life affirmation. Although Nietzsche criticizes the masters too, right? And says that they're kind of like uh, happy idiots. Um, but there's certainly something about like mass morality that Nietzsche is sort of celebrating and wants to bring back. Uh, that doesn't seem to exist for this kind of psychoanalytic reading, right? There is no mm. fall. There is no like previous moment where like, oh, actually desire did lead to like ultimate satisfaction and we lost that. So we have to regain it through, right. you know, like denial of whatever this current system is. No, right, it's, sure. it's, it, we've all, always already fallen. And that seems to elicit a different response, right?
1: Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, definitely. I mean, that's. I, I think that when I read this, the reason I thought it was interesting is because I almost read what Chu was saying is valorizing this element of the universal existential condition that people hate, but maybe that she's saying, or at least I would say, that there's actually something potent and powerful in self-negation. That self-negation precisely shows that outside. That it. it shows... Um, that which is kind of contesting the world system that tells you you have to just be like a complete thing, but that self-negation is essentially kind of a political outside, right? Mm -hmm. And I thought it was kind of interesting because as a trans woman, she's much better than I have anyway, lived in different spheres, different um, positions of sexuality, different... uh, um, in cultured, gendered, lived, gendered positions. Now, I don't know um, to what extent she ever identified as man, woman. I don't know how she identifies now. But the point is, is that there's something interesting about someone going through this transition that maybe experienced embodied maleness and a lot of the social, structural um Benefits, let's say, that go with that, and then now going into being a trans woman, does that not open up like different horizons of meaning um, that allow her to, to kind of like speak one of her own process of maybe like self negation, like negating those elements of of self that she's like even noticed in herself from before when. Maybe she was identifying as a man or whatever. I don't know, but it seems that there is something interesting in this idea of self-negation as being an essentially political, like attestation of that which is excessive and outside of, let's say, patriarchal capitalism. Yeah,
0: yeah, I like that idea of attestation and and like protest because, and you kind of get the theme here from uh, Chu's earlier essay that we talked about the uh, my new vagina won't make me happy. Um, assuming that we can give this diagnosis and then engage in some like, you know, to use a psychoanalytic, like Lucanian Lacanian term, a subjective destitution, which then leads us to like pure happiness or whatever, like the psychoanalytic cure. Um, that seems like more like the Nietzschean route, which is like, here's the diagnosis. And so the answer is embedded within the diagnosis, right? Yeah. We called that like reference back to uh, J. a J. Cohen's uh, idea, the like obstetric, uh like metaphor right if we can just do the diagnosis correct the answer will come out of it obviously um and that's just that might just be wrong it might be that we have to sit with this and accept that um the diagnosis tells us that things are fucked um that we're not going to have a resolution to this right at least right now and kind of be okay with that and not have an embedded answer inside of it um yeah. that was kind of the lesson i think from the From the essay the earlier essay from a couple years ago and maybe there's a similar idea here like you know Lacan's answer in some sense is like go out and like publicly masturbate right like fuck the Mm -hmm. uh, fuck the symbolic or whatever um but that maybe that's not the case maybe it's the case that we have to sit with um this kind of like 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 psychic contradiction uh for a little while and and deal with it Maybe see I was reading Everyone is Feeling and Everyone Hates That is like this like obvious criticism. Let's get out of femaleness. Then you're viewing it mm. in a different way, and that kind of making me enlightened a little bit to like, well, maybe everyone is feeling everyone hates it, but that's not obviously good or bad. That's not that doesn't yeah, they obviously be. give us the yeah. answer. Right. Let's just sit with that for yeah. a minute.
1: Yeah, that's kind of because that's when she says that it's a universal existential condition, that was kind of how I thought of it, as kind of like a de facto state of affairs is what she's saying rather than making a normative claim about it, you know?
0: Yeah, or at least the, the normative claim that follows from it is not like already embedded within it. Like, um, you know, murder is wrong. That's not, that's like a, it's a moral claim, right? But it's like a descriptive one and it has embedded in it that you shouldn't murder people, right? In some sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe this isn't isn't like that. Maybe this is everyone is feeling. Everyone hates it, and that's just a descriptive statement, um, and doesn't have any like clear, obvious, embedded normative implications.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. And then if you do Which want sucks. to open it up to some kind of <laughs> yeah, like yeah, I hate then, that too. And then I think it <laughs> you do but not in a, not oh, not, yeah. not in a bad way.
0: No, like in a like in a it makes me uncomfortable sort of way.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I can see that. See, I kind of liked it because I thought it opened it up to the possibility of some sort of almost like immediate political contestation, like you were saying earlier. That um, that it is precisely the fact that everyone hates it, but then why does everyone hate it? Why does everyone hate it? Because one, self-negation is uncomfortable. Two, it doesn't fit within our social, uh, economic, political landscape at the moment. Um, three, psychically, it's just simply uncomfortable, right? But then the question is like
0: an illicit suffering. Like that's I think clearly why the word hate is appropriate there.
1: Right, and then this is where Nietzsche, where Nietzsche comes in. Nietzsche would be like, "Yeah, it is, but it's bad. So stop self-negating, fucking pussies." Right. That would be like the Nietzschean response, and I don't think that that's right either. Um, No, it
0: it it, correct that it's bad, but the idea that it's bad therefore uh, normative implication X. Uh, mm. It's not the proper response, maybe.
1: Mm. What do you think about the Christian call to, like, die to self and what and whatnot now many years outside of the church?
0: Yeah, man, this is, like, one of my favorite things to think about because I think it's, like, it delivers this ultimate tension, right? Um, in that self-negation, in that moral sense that comes from, like, the take-up-your-cross take up mentality, denial of your own projects and desires is so obviously weaponized Against um, people on the losing side of like social power, right? Um, told to <clears throat> basically enjoy their suffering um, because they deserve it or it's necessary for progress or whatever the reason is, right? Uh, it's weaponized in this terrible way that I think we should definitely like not do. God but loves the also, le-
1: God loves the least of these kind of thing.
0: Yeah, so stay the least of these, please. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Uh, the poor
0: you'll always have with you, uh, kind of a thing. Um, and that, or like the poor, as like a like a means through which the rich can you know achieve their salvation or whatever. It's another form mm. of it. Um, there's that portion of it, but there's also something necessary about self-negation, right? It's clearly um, just like becoming a slave to your desire is not the answer because that itself is a form of like slavery, right? It's not freedom. It's not anything good. It elicits tons of suffering because we're self-reflective human beings who can't just give ourselves over to animalistic. Uh, satisfaction of desire without you know losing part of ourselves. So self-negation, actually deciding which of your desires is good and bad, and then, you know, rejecting the ones that you think are bad and accepting the ones you think are good, and maybe even reforming your desires based upon your meta desires, right? Your desires for your certain desires to be the case, um, is a is a very human thing. And so it becomes this because of the social conditions that exist, which place us in such a way um, that self negation can be a good or bad thing, and it's not clear in any instance which it is. Right, it could be both mm. at the same time in certain instances, and so that I think creates this like incredibly bewildering tension in our minds, where we end up being like practically um, paralyzed. We don't know what to do anymore
1: mm.
0: because we've kind of overthought this. But the problem is, underthinking it isn't an answer either. Right. Mm. Cause then that's just like another form of like becoming a slave to your own desires. In this case to slave to like ignorance or whatever. Um, so like, you know, taking drugs to figure out how to achieve enlightenment would be like a way mm. to I think right. do that enact that practical ignorance, which I don't think ultimately does anything. Although it could be fun. Um, mm. So yeah, I mean there's a lot here, but I, I love this idea of, of self negation because it's so kind of paradoxical.
1: Hmm yeah 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 it's I, I as much as i i find Nietzsche's critiques to be a bit wrong headed and themselves ironically themselves almost kind of reactive um there is something i know, right
0: how how wonderfully ironic is uh in the more sense is is Nietzsche, like talking about other people being reactive or i know, i know. <laughs>
1: I know, it's so funny. Um, the guy who you can hear yelling through the pages. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's perfect. But, but when he does criticize the self-hating of Protestant Christianity, I agree, right? I mean, I do think that is something that is especially... I spent a lot of time in communities that were highly influenced by the Puritans, and you'll never meet a group of more self-hating, austere motherfuckers than the Puritans, right? <laughs> um, like, I read what Matthew Henry and John Owen and fucking Jonathan Edwards and, I mean, you name it. Like, I was inundated with that stuff, right? Like, my father is still a part of a reformed Baptist church that confesses the 1689 London Baptist Confession, which is basically the Westminster Confession, but with without baby baptism. Um... And, uh and you know he just got back from a retreat where the, the the head pastor guy was he's like the pastor of some Puritan seminary like that's what it's called it's in like Michigan it's like the Puritan seminary whatever and um so there's there's um there's a sense in which I have like a real familiarity with the Puritans and that I used to buy fully into that idea of mortifying sin. But it turns into this morose self-hating. And so there's a liberation that you can find with like a Nietzschean self-affirmation that criticizes that that self-hatred and that can like lead to a type of hedonism or something else, you know, where you, you aren't hating yourself, but then you start pursuing pleasures and enjoying your own... Um, passions and you find purpose in things and you can you can actually invest in this world you know you can invest in people because then you don't just think that all of your intentions are evil and sinful and you don't constantly second guess yourself and you know so there's a freedom in that um and so I find there to be like a real ambivalence between that that freedom that Nietzsche speaks of, but also realizing that he might be going a little bit too far, and then at the same time of also kind of wanting to take up the mantle of Socrates and to know thyself, which implicitly means to care for the self and to work on yourself and to transform yourself. And I think there's even like a psychoanalytic mandate to kind of like... Um, subjective destitution but to kind of transform um your psychical condition you know especially address if you will your perversions and neuroses and psychosis or whatever and to become adjusted that there's a sense of of self-negation that takes place during that process too so so i'm i i kind of like feel pulled between two directions you know
0: yeah i like that a lot because i do think um the way i always kind of understood the the sort of usefulness the utility of psychoanalytic categories is through that virtue of knowing thyself. Um, Not as just like, you know, gobbledygook that's meant to like uh, interpret desires to always be like sexual or whatever. I'm kind of like the um, stereotypically Freudian sense, but to actually be like this project of knowing yourself so you can actually properly act, right. You can't really fundamentally act and know what you're doing when you're acting um unless you know yourself you know what your desires and your beliefs are yeah and so there's a project there of actually coming to understand yourself such that you can actually act and not be just um, engaging in um, like mere behavior or something and i think there's a kind of a, a a moral um condition there right you in order to you know act appropriately and and do the right thing you have to be able to to know yourself to some degree and that's a lifelong project we probably never actually fully fulfill it. Right. But Mm. I think we kind of have to at least try in order to, um, be said to be acting, um, appropriately. Mm. And so, yeah, I think it all kind of follows from that, from that same sort of, uh, inducement to to know thyself.
1: Mm. Yeah. Um, did you have any summarizing thoughts on, uh, anything surrounding the essay or anything else?
0: No, man, this was this was like an old school episode of Owls at Dawn where we start talking about a thing for like 10 minutes and then we end up like 50 <laughs> yards away.
1: Start, we always go back to the Greeks, fucking Socrates. <laughs> yeah. No, that's cool. I mean, I'm really curious. I want to read the book. Um, I like her writing. And it's interesting, when I read the review and she mentioned that, you know, there have already been a lot of blogs and subreddits and whatnot that have been critical of the book. It totally makes sense because I get like a real Lacanian vibe from the way that at least this review presents Chu's book and mm, yeah. feminists have a real problem with Lacan, right? And not all, obviously we had Isabel on a couple of episodes ago and we kind of talked about that. We worked through that. But, but generally speaking, I can totally see why feminists would have a problem with some of these provocative claims and then if there is that Lacanian psychoanalytic underpinning then I'm like oh yeah then I totally get why people would have a problem with Mm -hmm. a lot of the arguments that she puts forth you know
0: yeah and if you want a good explanation for why Lacan actually should be the greatest comrade to feminists go back to that episode with Isabel because that was the best encapsulation of um, why feminism and and Lacan should be hand in hand that I've ever heard
1: Mm agreed well sweet well let's go ahead and finish up the main segment there and let's jump into the sticky leaves brother yeah so sticky Alright, right so now we're going to jump into the sticky leaves this is the portion of the episode where one of us gets to recommend something that is bringing us joy in a world that is potentially meaningless so troy what's making you happy man
0: dude I love the new Watchmen TV series.
1: Oh, yeah. You messaged me about this.
0: I recommended it to you. It is so good. So a little background. Um, have you read the Watchmen comics or graphic no. novel? Never. So I read um, the Watchmen uh, comics, the the twelve, the series of 12 comics that were kind of put into one graphic novel later on, I think, um, by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons. I read them in, I think, 2008 or nine. It was right when the Zack Snyder movie came out, and I wanted to read the graphic novel before the movie came out. Um, and I'm, my friend, my roommate at the time, had had it in the in the flat in our flat. Mm. So I just read it over a weekend right before going to the movie. Mm. Um, and uh, it's the kind of thing you can read in you know a couple settings. Uh, it's long for you know a comic book, obviously, but uh, it's it's not so long that you can't. And it's it's so engrossing that you'll you'll want to spend hours and hours in a row on it. And I've never really read comics. I didn't read comics growing up. I've probably looked at maybe three or four comics in my entire life, like actually opened them up and actually digested any of the material. So I have basically no history with comic books. Watchmen was the first uh, thing in that genre that I've ever fully read and like really was enraptured by and cared about. And I didn't really proceed to read anything else (laughs) in Mm. that dimension at all Mm -hmm. um, because it's just who's got time for that. Uh, But (laughs) I loved... The graphic novel. I love the comic. um mm. I thought it was so interesting, and in that m- the most of the rest of the comics that I would even like glanced at before, I just was not interested. They didn't grab me in any way. They didn't seem compelling to me personally, um, for the themes that I just wasn't interested in. um But Watchmen was different. It was about you know the the people, like the, the psychological individuals, and how they're affected by this whole idea of being a superhero, as well as mm. what superheroes would actually be like. In real society, like if they would really exist with the current politics, right? And so Watchmen, um, the United States wins the Vietnam War because they have superheroes that they use as basically, you know, political actors uh, and military actors. Uh, And then the political uh, structures of society are changed because of the existence of superheroes. Uh, And of course, only one superhero actually is a superhero. The rest of them are just masked vigilantes, basically. So I thought the whole thing was super interesting. I love the comic. Zack Snyder's movie kind of sucked, um, but that's neither here nor there. When it was announced that Damon Lindelhoff, who's famous for making Lost and The Leftovers, mm-hmm. um, was going to do a sequel to Watchmen, I was very worried and scared and not at all anticipating anything good. I do like David off a lot. We've talked about leftovers quite a bit on this podcast, I think, because it is amazing. Love it. Um, love it. Yeah. But the thing about leftovers is the first season was not so great. It was just kind of promising. Um, and it was based on Tom Prada's book entirely. It was an adaptation of it. And the second and third seasons of leftovers were not based on the book. They're extensions of the book. Mm. And those were amazing. Um, So I should have seen this coming (laughs) that I kind of wanted Lindelhoff to just remake Watchmen because Zack Snyder's version sucked. Um, But man, the exact same thing has happened. Extending Watchmen, like kind of somewhat faithfully following the thematic elements of Watchmen, but doing it in uh, Lindelhoff's own way has worked out perfectly. It basically is the leftovers meets Watchmen. It's got the leftovers theme and structure, um, with the content of Watchmen, and so while it's not necessarily super faithful to the thematic elements of Watchmen, given that the you know the, the mediums are different, it's going to be the case anyway. It's just so fun. Um, it is bewildering and confusing and all over the place, but in the in the great way that leftovers was too. Where you're mm. just like on the edge of your seat at all times and just mm. loving every minute of the confusion and the mystery and the craziness.
1: Yeah.
0: And the acting is great and the dialogue is great. And I, I read Watchmen. And while I'm not like a, you know, a super devotee of the of the book, I don't know like every like nook and cranny of it. Um, I'm still confused at the show. Like I know who Dr. Manhattan and the comedian and all these people are who are just referenced, you know, obliquely in the show. I can't imagine if you hadn't read the comic where you would be watching the show. It would. That's just what be I was going to ask. Like the most confusing one, thing ever.
1: Yeah, should one read the comic before they watch the show? Like, is that almost mandated prerequisite?
0: Or is the thing I think you should just because the comic is really good. Okay. And you'll enjoy it, and you can do it in like two sittings.
1: So okay. you should
0: anyway, just for your own like personal, you know, satisfaction. And I do think you probably will enjoy the series more having read the comic because you'll see the references to all these elements from the uh, from the comic but also given that it's still bewildering and mysterious and you have no idea what the fuck is going on um I wonder if that just gets amplified having not read the comic and that might even make that part of it more enjoyable I don't know that's a counterfactual situation hmm. so I'd be curious if anybody out there has not read the comic but is watching the series how they've responded to the like the mystery and like just craziness elements of it. Because um, mm. it's it's wonderful. It's better than I could have possibly imagined this would have been. I was I was anticipating something bad just because I didn't think you could possibly do this thing. Like a sequel to Watchmen that was actually good. And it's totally gone off the rails in a way that I'm loving. And maybe maybe it doesn't keep up. Maybe this is just destined for destruction because you can't do something like this. Mm-hmm. Um, but so far, every part of it's been great. I've loved it. And I think... I think I can't believe this isn't like um, Game of Thrones level popular, or at least like the early seasons of Game of Thrones level popular. I'm not hearing too much scuttlebutt about it on the internet, and I'm surprised because I think it's thoroughly enjoyable.
1: What uh, what channel is it on?
0: It's HBO. It is
1: okay. Huh.
0: And dude, you like the leftovers as much as I do. Yes. Um, I think even if you don't feel like you have time to read the original comic. You got to give it a try cuz if you love those themes from the, from the leftovers, um nothing's going to scratch that itch like this one does.
1: <laughs> okay. Weird. Okay. Curious now. All right. Uh, but yeah, you
0: may want to wait until it's over so you can binge it.
1: That's what I was going to say. How many episodes? I think there's been 4
0: and it's going to be something like 8 or 10. So by the end of the year I think it'll be over.
1: Okay. Yeah, I'll wait and then I'll binge it. So it's it's this is the first season. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: Right. And this is I should mention also like um the basic setting is third so the original Watchmen comic is set in the mid 80s and um uh Richard Dixon is still president he's been president for like several terms and um the new series on HBO is set present day in 2019 in um so it's about 30ish years or almost 40 years something like that o- after um the original comic so the characters who are from the original comic who are still and this series are uh, much older, um, and fucking Jeremy Irons, isn't it, dude? So if That's you don't great. have any other reason to watch this, Jeremy Irons yeah. is playing the villain from the original comic, and he cool. is ridiculous and amazing. Um, and I think he's on the moon, although I'm unsure about mm. it. Like literally, I think that his character's on the moon, but we're not sure. Um, the The setting is in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is like a weird place to have like a superhero kind of. TV series in mm-hmm. Tulsa, Oklahoma, yeah. There's a whole background involving the Tulsa massacre of 1921, which I actually was not familiar with before watching the series. Um, I knew of this place called Black Wall Street in Tulsa. I'd heard that term before, but I didn't know what it referenced. And it was this um, this area of Tulsa in 19 early 20th century that um where a bunch of African-American-owned businesses existed. And there was a lot of like financial success for African-American families there. And a bunch of like uh basically cops and KKK members came and just massacred the whole area and killed uh, dozens and dozens of people and destroyed all the businesses. And uh, like nothing ever really happened from that. Mm. And so that event plays a huge role in what's happening almost a hundred years later in Mm. Tulsa. So that, that by itself, like that element of it should be, Oh shit, I want to watch this. Yeah. Then just add in the fact that you have all this crazy shit from Watchmen in it.
1: Damn. Okay, I'll watch it. But see, now I feel like I need to wa- I need to read the graphic novel first. So you know what I might do? Hmm. I might this weekend. I might go to the local bookstore. They'll have Watchmen there. I might get it. It's worth it, man. Okay. Maybe I'll do that first because I feel like I need to at least get a basic grip on Like, What if I just watch the movie? Is that fine? No, because you're going to
0: hate it. It's not good. Yeah, but what if I what if I
1: just watch it and then like I'll understand the characters and shit like that, right? And then that'll be enough as a prerequisite as a prequel. Yeah, I
0: just don't think you'll care about them. You read the comics, you'll care about these characters. You watch the movie; they're so stilted um, and poorly acted. And um, there's been some, even though Snyder really faithfully adapted like the scenes from the comic, um, the emotional character of it is not there. And, um, also he changed the ending, which is super important to, because the TV series is based on the comic ending, not on the okay. Zack Snyder movie ending. So you'll be like, what the fuck is happening? If okay. you're watching the TV series, having watched just the movie.
1: Okay. So I got to read the book first. Okay. Okay. I know what I got to do. Yeah. Yeah. But right. Yeah. I'm curious. Anybody out
0: there who listens to this, uh, who is a, uh, a bigger comic book fan, Watchmen fan. I'm curious what your thoughts are on this. There's been a lot of um pushback from the comic community, I think, against mm. the new TV series, um because a lot of the um there's a lot of uh, racial and uh, and like um, I guess you could say kind of like feminist elements in the mm. TV series that do not exist in the comic because, yeah, there's a certain weakness to the comic in terms of having, like, female characters who have, like, an interior life and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And, and, you know, African-American characters, non-white characters um, who actually have, like, a role to play in the story. So uh, there's some Pushback there. um, And also one of the, like, favorite characters from the comic whose uh, name is Rorschach. Mm -hmm. Um, He has followers in the new TV series, and they are basically the new KKK. And uh, Rorschach is kind of beloved by a lot of, uh, you know, young white males mm. um so there's there's pushback there too but i think there's a good reason why uh those followers uh, have become basically the new kkk so i'm curious for anybody out there their responses to it if they see this as problematic or they can see some of the through lines that, that i think are there too that make more sense of the connection between the new tv series and the original comic.
1: cool yeah you can email us owls at don at gmail.com and or just and tra- at
0: me motherfuckers
1: oh yeah twitter tweet Axe wielder of death, i I'm literally, I'm
0: asking you to at me. This is the first time ever. Yeah, this is the
1: first time you've ever asked for any sort of social media attention. This is serious yeah. shit. I think everybody who listens to this should flood Troy's Twitter just for shits and giggles. Oh, shit. If you don't, fuck if you, you don't have a Twitter, <laughs> just get one and just flood him. Even just to say hi. Just be like, or fuck you, or Lakers suck, or Rorschach is a racist fuck. Whatever I'm, it is. I'm
0: deleting my account. <laughs> forthwith. Uh,
1: well, cool man. Um, yeah, I'm I am curious. You did you hit me up about this what a couple weeks ago maybe, and I I put it out of my mind because I was like, Oh, it sounds interesting, but I you know, one, there's just too much to watch, too much to read, too much to do. But uh yeah, fuck it. Come on, man. You gotta watch good TV, and I do love Damon Lindelhoff, so okay. Yeah, if
0: anything, just trust just trust that Lindelhoff has something interesting to say.
1: Okay cool cool alright dude yeah let's go ahead and wrap up the episode there thank y'all for tuning in to another uh, episode of OAD um, go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn to support us email us owls at dawn podcast at com. twitter insta owls underscore at underscore dawn are our handles um, I think that's it unless there's anything else you want to say dude just one more thing I can think of dude what's up brother
0: that's for Dani, American.